don't we give our musicians a big clap of appreciation as they sit down. Do you know, I was saying in the first service, that song as we sung it reminded me of the time when the name of Jesus was a curse word on my lips, when it suddenly changed and became a name of praise. I was 15 years of age, and I know all of us have got a story about that moment when Christ came into our lives, where He changed everything forever. I was 15 years of age, and up until that time, Jesus was but a curse word. But suddenly, in that moment of opening my heart and receiving this wonderful love, Jesus no longer was that curse word in my mouth, but that wonderful, wonderful name in which I have loved and praised. I remember that moment, and now, 51 years of age, I tell you now, from 15 to 51, I tell you, His name is above every name, and what a name it is, and the joy that we get in just proclaiming His name and giving thanks to Him and praising Him. Amen. I tell you, when I was 15 years of age, I had some hair on my head. You wouldn't believe it. Lovely long locks. But now, you know, time goes as it does and your hair goes with it as well. Over recent weeks, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as I'm sure you Um, are aware of. And here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is showing us what this more excellent way of love is all about. The Greek playwriters of Paul's day dramatized love as being a tragedy, a kind of madness. Love for them was a destructive obsession. And this kind of philosophy, this kind of thinking had crept its way into the Corinthian church. But Paul challenged and confronted that dominant view that was so prevalent in Greek culture by holding up what true love is all about. The love of God, which is unconditional. The love of God, which never fails and is undefeatable. Paul holds it up for everyone to see. And Paul shows them a love that is vastly different from the love that they had known and were acquainted with. Paul shows them that this love isn't something that you fall into or fall out of a sensual feeling that's fleeting. Here, Paul shows them a love that is consistent in every circumstance, a love that is victorious, a love that is unending. The more excellent way that Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is our privilege. It is our portion that is given to us, and it was vastly different to the theatrical performances of Paul's time. Paul confidently states, this love will never fail. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw how in just Four short verses, Paul sets out 
15 attributes that characterize God's love in action. And what you become aware of when you listen to Paul is that he wants everyone to experience this glorious, unfailing love of God that's ready to formulate every thought, formulate every word, and shape every attitude and action of life. This love that Paul talks about never puts us at a disadvantage. In fact, it gives us the cutting edge. It gives us the great advantage in life as we live it. This is what Jesus died to give us. And he proves that by shedding it abroad, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 5, shedding it abroad in our heart abundantly through the power of the Holy Spirit. When life is most adverse, when life seems at its lowest or at its darkest, it's in those very moments, in those very times that can trigger this love to spring into action. Therefore, for Paul, every moment of life holds vast potential because every moment in life can be the means and the opportunity that God's love takes to spring into action, to manifest. God's love can take every disadvantage and use it for his glory. Let's read again from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll read from verse 4 through to verse 8. The more excellent way of love, as Paul describes it. He says, love is patient, suffers long, and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, a week Last Sunday ago, we focused on verse 4, if you remember, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And here, just to recap briefly, Paul sets out five attributes of God's love. Firstly, he tells us that love is patient or it suffers long. And here he wants us to understand that love, this love in your heart and in my heart, never seeks revenge. Love never concocts a plan to pay people back for the wrong done. This patience in love rules our emotions that maybe want to rise up vengefully and deactivates them. Love is patient, he says. Then next, he goes on. And he tells us that not only is love passively patient in that it can suffer long, he actually tells us that love is also kind. Love takes action to be kind to those who mistreat it. 
This is the dimension. This is the dynamics of the power of this love that is in you. When your emotions and your feelings are on the floor from various circumstances or situations that seem so out of control and unfair, it's this love that can spring into action and actually be kind to those who are mistreating you. It's amazing. It really is. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural way of living. Jesus called it abundant life, like a river of living water, and it's in you, and it's in me to be activated and to be seen by others. Talking about this wonderful power of life that Jesus gives us, he said this, that we would have love for our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, and we would be able to pray for those who would spitefully use us and persecute us. I tell you, that's a power on another level. It really is. That's a dimension of life in Christ that is rarely seen within our world, but it is, it, it's normal place amongst believers or should be. That's the power of the more excellent way that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hate and hostility can never stop God's love. It can never stop or deactivate the power of this love. In fact, hate and hostility very often are the means that give opportunity for this love to flourish. In this verse, we also saw that Paul continues to tell us that love does not envy. It doesn't furiously boil over when other people are blessed. It's never consumed with jealousy. And then he goes on to tell us, after reminding us that love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy. He tells us that this love of God in Christ Jesus that's been shed abroad in your heart, it does not boast. Paul is here. Paul here is telling us that love doesn't flaunt or parade itself. It doesn't parade its accomplishments in the face of others. It never uses personal success to belittle or berate another person. It can't do that. And then finally, Paul tells us to cap it off in verse 4 that love is not proud. It's not inflated. It's not puffed up in its personality. It's not trying to be the center of attention. It's not trying to be the biggest person in the room. It's secure. It appreciates and loves and values others. It's not proud. What a wonderful start. And they're just five attributes of this wonderful love of God within our new nature that is there as a result of the Holy Spirit being in our lives. Now today we're going to move from verse 4 to verse 5 where Paul continues to tell us that love now on from these five attributes in verse 4. He tells us beginning in verse 5 that love does not behave 
rudely. Paul here wants us to understand that this love is so powerful that it can change human behavior. It can change and transform the way we behave in life. That's wonderful news for you and me. That was wonderful news for all those believers in Corinth because their behavior wasn't representative of Christ. They, their, their, their behavior toward one another was really factious and there were so many conflicts and arguments that were bringing them down and almost causing them to destroy one another. And Paul comes out not telling them off or demanding or placing laws on them again. No, Paul comes out and he begins to unpack and describe this love that is inside their hearts. And he says it doesn't behave rudely. It changes and transforms us. If you think about our behavior, it's made up of our words, the words that we speak, the actions that we take, and the attitudes that we hold. By Paul saying that love does not behave rudely, he's highlighting that this love has a restraining power. It can govern and subdue any behavior that might be damaging to you and damaging to others. That's great news. It really is. You have within you the means whereby every behavior can be brought and held in place and governed by love. Wonderful news for us. Love does not initiate. He's showing us any action which could bring disgrace. Paul is pointing out that crude, bad-mannered, or impolite behavior is not part of the more excellent way of life. Now, of course, we could look back on our lives and we could see how we failed looking at this and reading the Scriptures and especially focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I see how I'm failing all the time. Why? Because it measures you. It brings a light on aspects and areas of your life, as it should do. And that's a good thing, not to condemn us, but to bring us to, to see where we are in life. We fail at this, but we, we want to grow. We want to move on. We, wanna, we want this same power that Paul experienced in his life, in the life of Christ, to be our life too. The word behavior carries the idea of an order, an ordered way of life, a pattern or form of living. It implies that there is a proper way, a proper form to live by, a way to follow. Jesus said, didn't he, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a way among many ways. No, he said, I am the way. Follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. What is he saying? There's a pattern. There's a form to living, to life, and you'll find it in me. Paul wants us to know that we have been created 
Listen, you and I have been created to display the highest form of dignity and perfection, the very image of God. We are to reflect his likeness in the love from our heart to others and to the world in which we live. Paul on another occasion said, be imitators of God. My God, is that possible? It is possible because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Now, we may be a long way from it, but let's keep it before us and let that be our goal and our destiny and our desire of life. We are created to display the very image and the very likeness and the very character of God. We're being conformed, the Bible says, to Christ's perfection. We're not there yet. We acknowledge that. But the exciting thing is, is that the Holy Spirit has got his hand on those out-of-control areas and he's shaping them, graciously molding them and crafting them under his power and under his hand. And that's good news. Do you know, years ago, I remember on one occasion speaking to a person about another person in an inappropriate way. It was a, a five-minute conversation where I was critical and negative and cold in my comments about another person. And then, you know, after I'd, you know, let vent and criticize this person who wasn't present, you know, we just moved on to another subject, as you do. You carry on and you just move on and, and you know, you just continue to, to chat away and that was it. I left it. Little did I know that that five-minute conversation was going to be taken hold of by the Holy Ghost and used as a means to discipline me. I'd left love's more excellent way in the way that I was speaking. I'd left love's more excellent way. And my, my attitude and my actions and my comments... We're not in love. That night I went to bed. Laid my head on the pillow. I was ready to go to sleep. Hard day's work. Ready to go to sleep. I couldn't get to sleep. And worse than that, I didn't have any peace. That's worse than not having sleep. No peace. I was unrestful inside trying to work out what's going on, man. Now, deep down, I knew exactly what it was all about, right? But I wouldn't acknowledge it. I, there's no way, man, I'm acknowledging this before God. There's no way that I'm, I'm talking to the Holy Ghost about this. So, you know, you, you, you suppress your conscience. You push it to the back. And you think, oh, no, I'll just force myself to get to sleep. Well, two o'clock in the morning, I'm still wide awake. <laughs> still wide awake. Well, that night, I mean, man, I just tossed and turned all night. I think I was a bit like Jonah, right? Tossed and turned all night. Tossed and turned all night. No sleep, no peace. Oh, goodness me. Got up the next day, went to work tired, came home even more tired, decided to go to bed a bit earlier. I need some sleep, man. Put my head on the pillow, couldn't get to sleep. My goodness me. And even worse than that, no peace. No peace. Oh, 
just churning. So, I mean, I thought, oh, man, you know, I, I just, you know, you're trying to search for reasons in, in your mind, but you know, you know what it's about, right? So anyway, I just fought it, just forced myself, trying to go to sleep, three o'clock in the morning, still can't sleep. I thought, oh, man, it's just time to have a... And the Holy Spirit didn't say anything. He's just waiting there, like, waiting to get me to the moment, right? And he does this. He's fantastic. Just to get me to the moment where we have the conversation. So I just decided, I thought, I can't go on like this. Holy Spirit, I know what this is about. A couple of days ago, I spoke coldly and critically about that person, and I shouldn't have done it. It was only a five-minute conversation I had, and it wasn't that bad, really. Anyway, I, wanna, I, want, I want to say sorry, right? And then I pulled on the Holy Ghost, right? Have you ever pulled a, a, a get-out-of-jail verse on the Holy Ghost? Have you ever done that? You, you pull God's own word and, and you present it to him in his face, expecting him to do something. And it, all it does, it adds insult to injury, really, right? So I, I got my, my, my get out of jail verse out. And it was in 1 John 1, 9. I'll read it to you. This was it, right? I quoted it to the Holy Spirit. I said, Lord, in your word it says, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I confess my sin to you. I'm sorry. I can't deal with this not being able to sleep. I can't deal with this not having peace in my heart. I am sorry. I confess to you that I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Thank you, Lord. Right, I'm off to sleep. Put my head on the pillow. Hour later, still awake. No peace. No peace. So I'm thinking, my God, now, I've used the word of God as a, jet, uh, as a get out of jail verse, and I still can't get to sleep, and I still haven't got any peace. What's going on? Holy Spirit, you said this, and it's not working. He said, then he spoke. See, this is what he was waiting for. This is what he was waiting for. Then he spoke. And he said, um, he said, oh, Dave, he said, you're right. See, he knows the Bible, the Holy Spirit. It's unbelievable. It really is. He knows the Bible. So he said, Dave, you're right. He said, it does say in my word, if you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well done, Dave. Well done. Oh, yeah, you know the word. He said, but it also says in my word, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Dave, the peace that you seek is not found in you confessing your sin to me. The peace that you're seeking, Dave, is found in confessing your sin to your brother. The first words out of my mouth was, oh no, God, please. I'd rather just confess them to you. I said to the Holy Spirit, I knew he was talking. 
I knew, I knew it, right? I just said, Holy Spirit, you're right. I am sorry. Firstly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, what, for, for insulting you, for not obeying your word. Sorry. I repent. I change my mind. I want you to change my heart in relation to this issue. I want to make a 180-degree turnaround in my life. I'm wrong. Sorry. I repent. Now I'm going to go to my brother and I'm going to chat with him tomorrow morning and I'm going to tell him what I said about him and I'm going to ask him to forgive me. Immediately peace came, put my head on the pillow, went to sleep, right? Got up in the morning. I tell you, I, was, I, I felt so liberated, so free. I knew what I had to do. I sat down. Now this, this, this brother, doesn't, he's, he doesn't, he's not in the church here anymore. But um, I went up to him. But still a good friend, still a great friend. I went up to him and I said, um, I said, oh, look, I got something to tell you. I've got something to tell you. He said, what's the matter, Dave? I said, I said, I was having a conversation with somebody and I ran through it. I said, I said comments about you that I shouldn't have said. They were uncalled for. They were cold. They were critical. And, and it's not right. I said, I knew that Jesus wasn't pleased with the way that I spoke about you. And I said, he's had me up for two nights. And I said, he showed me that I've got to come and tell you that, that it was wrong. And I, I need to ask you for your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Do you know what? A big smile came off. A big smile came on his face. And he said, of course I'll forgive you. Of course I will. We prayed together. We prayed together. I went out. Do you know our relationship was strong already? But it was even stronger after I went and did what the Holy Spirit told me to do. And today, when I see him, we've got a great relationship and friendship and can talk openly. Now, you may not have to do that. You may never have to do that. You may never have to do that. But there are occasions where the Holy Spirit will pick up on things that we consider to be very small, minor, and we ignore them, and he will take them up as a means of discipline to change us and for us to learn not to be so flippant with our words. How many know? I tell you now, when the next opportunity came for me to criticize somebody or gossip, I tell you now, I took two steps back and thought, I am keeping my trap shut. Why? Because I like my peace and I like my sleep. Really? And, and sometimes you need, to, you, you need to come under the Holy Spirit as teacher. We think the Holy Spirit as teacher, oh, he's going to teach me about Deuteronomy. He's gonna, no, he's going to teach you about the flesh and how we yield to it. And he's going to bring you into a spirit-filled life. He's not going to give you a fat head full of scripture. He's going to get right his hands right into your heart so that he can sort your character out. Wonderful. Wonderful. It really is. Jesus will always take you far, far beyond the place where you want to go. And this cross life will cut in and change and transform every area of our lives. You see, what I considered to be a small issue in the eyes of the Holy Ghost was a big issue. What I considered to just pass on by and forget about the Holy Spirit brought up and said, we're going to deal with this and we're going to smack it head on. 
Solomon put it this way when he wisely said in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1 to verse 2, dead flies in perfume make it stink, and a little foolishness decomposes much wisdom. Wise thinking leads to right living. Stupid thinking leads to wrong living. The more excellent way sometimes requires that we pick out the flies from the perfume of our lives. The seemingly small and noticeable issues will be taken by the Holy Spirit and he will cause us to pick out those issues and address them and put them right as he did with myself. So the question for us all that this point leaves us with is, do we behave appropriately in love to our fellow man? How do we treat our wives? How do we treat our husbands? How do we relate to our next-door neighbors or the people down the street as a Christian, as a believer? How do we speak to our children as loving parents? What's the example that we're setting before them? What's our behavior like? When we drive our car and we're in rush hour traffic, this is really practical, but it's profound because life reveals where you are and who you're becoming in Christ Jesus. How do we communicate when our complaints have gone unheard for months? How do we respond to that? Love helps us, listen, love helps us to pick out the everyday flies from our lives that would spoil the ointment, that would spoil the sweet smell of that perfumed life of the Holy Ghost in our hearts. And it keeps us in on course with the more excellent way. Next, Paul shows us, and we're going to move through these a little quicker now. Paul shows us that love does not seek its own. Paul here is revealing to us that love is not self-centered but sacrificial. Oh, to be freed from that life of self that's immersed in itself, to be set free from that, to live this wonderful sacrificial life in Christ. To the believers at Philippi, Paul explained exactly that they could, how they could have this glorious life in Christ Jesus. All they had to do was embrace a whole new way of thinking, letting the very mind of Christ become their mind. Listen to how he puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to verse 8. He says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul uses Jesus 
as the perfect example and encourages us to have the same mind, the same attitude that Christ carried as he lived his life and as he gave his life so sacrificially. Paul says this mind can be in you. This mind can be yours. Pursue it. Allow it. Let it become yours. Let it permeate all of your mind and the way that you think. The mind of Christ is to be our mind. And Paul urges us to let it be so in our lives. It's a lowly mind that considers others of more importance. It prioritizes the needs of others above our own. It's a selfless life, a sacrificial life that love in your heart empowers you and me to live. Next, Paul moves on and he highlights that love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. He's told us that love doesn't behave rudely. He said that love is not selfish. And now he's showing us another dimension and another aspect of this glorious love in our heart. He says it's not provoked. Or we could put it this way, love doesn't bite. You know, as a boy, I used to go fishing. And the trick was, I found out, to hide the little hook in a big piece of bait. The key to fishing, the key to catching fish, is not showing the fish the hook. You've got to hide that hook in the bait. So the only thing the fish sees is the food. And once the fish bites the bait, that sharp barb in the hook fastens itself in the mouth of the fish and all you have to do from the bank is reel that thing in. No matter how it fights, you can play with the fish and it can go this way and that way. No matter how it fights, if that hook is firmly in, in the mouth of the fish, all you have to do is reel it in and then net the thing. Most days, there's going to be things that are going to provoke you and me. You can't escape it. You can't escape provocation. Provocation in work. Provocation from your friends. Provocation from associates. Sometimes provocation in the home. If you're a young person here today, in school, in college, you know, on Facebook, social media, there's going to be a multitude of things at some point in your life that are going to provoke you. And the hook is going to be baited for you. The hook is going to be hid. You're not going to be able to see it in a comment, in an action, in a behavior. But what Paul is saying is that love enables you to see the hook that is hidden in the bait so that you don't bite it. Love protects you from provocation. It's provocation, sometimes sadly, that can destroy our families. It's provocation that is bitten into, that is taken hold of, that can destroy friendships. Provocation can do all kinds of damage. But Paul says there's a power inside you whereby you can see provocation. You can see the hook that's hidden in it and you can avoid it. Solomon in, in, in the book of Proverbs says this, a wise man foresees evil 
afar off and avoids it. Listen, a wise man foresees evil afar off and avoids it. What's that? That's love. That's love seeing the hook in the bait and not biting, but turning in a different direction to avoid it. That's the power inside of you to protect you, to enable you to be successful in life and to not be caught in the detours of what would seek to provoke you. Love is not provoked, he says. And then finally, this is the final point today that we're going to look at. Paul tells us that love has an immense standard in the way that it thinks. An immense standard. It can enrich our minds in the way that we think. He's, he says to us, love thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil. Now that might seem as a, like a simple statement to ignore. Something that can easily be overlooked. But the power of God's love in our hearts enables us to think no evil. Just, just think about that for a moment. Just think about the power of this love and how it can shape not only your behavior, but how it can formulate and fashion and bring in order the thoughts that you think in your mind. Love thinks no Evil, this can have a profound impact on our lives. Paul is showing us that love never feasts at the table of scandal. It has no appetite or enjoyment in evil thoughts of any kind. There's a powerful story in the life of David that illustrates this. Illustrates this truth strikingly. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 10. You can read it when you go home. One of David's royal neighbors died, King Nahash of the Amorites. So David sent an official delegation of ambassadors on Israel's behalf to mourn the death of the Ammonite king. He wanted to show them respect. He sends them to their funeral to honor King Nahash. He wanted to show his kindness to the king's son because King Nahash had previously shown kindness to David. So David sends his official delegation to this funeral ceremony. But the new king's advisors were suspicious men. They told David, or sorry, they told, king Nah uh, they told King Nahash's son that David's ambassadors had not come to pay respect. They were really spies from Israel. And that David was actually planning a takeover of their land. The new king believed these evil thoughts and humiliated publicly David's ambassadors by chopping off 
half of their beards and cutting their garments. It was just a crazy action to take. But it all began in the evil thinking of those advisors that advised King Nahash's son regarding David's actions. The result was, listen to this, a terrible war where tens of thousands of men were killed. Where did it start? It started in the minds of a group of men that could not restrain their evil thoughts. Instead of seeing David's kindness, they were suspicious, and their evil minds concocted this plan whereby they thought that David was going to take over their land. It was far from his thinking. He wanted to show them an act of kindness, but this evil filter in their minds interpreted their act of kindness, an act of honor in a dishonorable way. How easy it is to judge the motives of others and be wrong. Evil thinking will twist and distort a kind word or a compliment and say it's just manipulative. Evil thinking can take an act of genuine kindness and destroy it because of suspicion. Evil thinking was behind the first murder in the Bible where Cain killed his brother Abel. But God's love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit thinks no evil. This love always puts the highest and best interpretation on what others say and do. Love does not think evil. And our minds very often are a battleground. Our minds very often can be a playground for all manner of thoughts. But what a, what a joy it is to know the love of God in our hearts, addressing those thoughts, judging those thoughts, subduing those thoughts, and bringing them into order. We really don't have any idea how our lives will be spared unnecessary burdens and troubles if we walk in love and stop trying to second-guess everybody, looking for hidden meanings here and there and being suspicious. Love thinks no evil. This is freedom. Freedom indeed. Love doesn't behave rudely. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. It thinks no evil. You're the richest person on the planet. You're the most invested person on the planet. Why? Oh, you might not live in a stately home. You might not dress with designer clothes. Your car might be a bit battered, but you're the richest person in the planet because God has chosen to shed abroad his rich, abundant life, love in your heart. Wonderful. Really is. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. We're just going to close in a few moments. Heard a story about a lady who would criticize her neighbor every time she hung her washing out 
to dry on the line. I think she was from Ebervale. She would say to her husband as she looked through the window at her neighbor's washing, look, there she is again. Dirty washing on the line. I mean, doesn't the woman wash the clothes properly? And look at, look at the bed sheets full of stains. Somebody needs to take her in hand and show her what she needs to do. Dirty laundry. Week after week, this woman would look through the windows and criticize her neighbor's washing as it hung on the line to dry because it was not clean. And then one day, she looked out the window, nice sunny day. She saw her neighbor's washing. She looked at her husband. She said, my God, she's finally learned how to do her laundry. The sheets are clean. There's no stains. The clothes, look at them. Wow, I'm impressed. I wonder what she's done. Her husband looked at her. Very wise man from Brimmau. And he said, um, he said, well, he said, I don't know if this makes a difference, but I washed our windows today. You see, Moral of the story, very simple. Dirty windows, dirty washing. Clean windows, clean washing. Dirty windows, dirty world. Clean windows, clean world. You look at your marriage through clean windows, how amazing it looks! Look at your husband. What a stallion he is. You look at your wife. Clean windows. Wow. I've married the best. Married the best. Look at your colleagues and your friends around you. And everything is clean when the windows are clean. All they need is a good wash with love. That's all. You wash the windows with love, and it's wonderful how it transforms us. Now again, please hear me. We've all failed at this. I've told you personal stories as to how I failed at it. I could tell you some this week where I failed. I could keep you here all year. But do you know what the answer is just keep washing the windows with this unconditional love of God that never fails, that's been lavishly poured out in our hearts. This is what the world needs. It harbors pain. It carries hurt. This is what our world needs. Not critical comments a behavior that reflects this unconditional love of God in Christ Jesus reaching out when others are failing around us. It needs, it needs this unconditional love that is so selfless and sacrificial that it goes the extra mile and doesn't demand 
any kind of repayment. This is what the world needs. When it's trying to draw us in and provoke us, that we turn the other cheek even when we're struck. This is the love that's going to reach our world. This is the love, love in action for our world to see. And a love that thinks no evil, but represents Jesus in all of his fullness. Amen. And it is our privilege for that love to reside in us. It's not a feeling. Jesus did not die to give us a lot of nice feelings. He died so that the power of his Holy Spirit could live in us and we could radiate this love and this light and this life in newness of life to a world all around us and we could be the recipients of something that is so glorious and so tremendous that we truly are the very body of Christ among many others within this city, within this nation, and within this world. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray right now. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, thank you that it's a light that illuminates our way. It's a searchlight sometimes that reveals things that you want to address in our lives. But you're a father. You are our father, a tender, loving father. And you discipline us because you love us. You correct us and you mold and shape and fashion and take away those sharp edges from our lives. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's painful. We cry tears. But even though we cry tears in the night, there's joy in the morning as we see a wonderful reflection of your life in our lives. Lord, pray for your people as they've graciously received your word today. I pray that this life that's in us would manifest gloriously in all of the circumstances that face us. That we would see it in all of its wonder and we would know its power and that we are the richest of recipients to have the very love of God in our hearts. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, or just nod your head. Amen. Noel's going to come. We're going to continue just finally to, to sing. But look, you know, as I know, the moment we get out of those doors, there's going to be so much opportunity for this love to have expression. And, it, and this love is activated, remember, through challenge, through difficulty, through conflict. But don't fear it. Don't fear it. You're more than a match for any conflict, any circumstance, any crisis in life because God's love is inside you. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.